0: My name is Ben, if I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here at EV, and what a joy and a privilege it is to open up God's Word uh, with you guys, particularly and uh, even in spite of perhaps the fact of a reading like this, where we're left with maybe more questions than we originally had before we read it. Uh, It's one of those passages, isn't it, that leaves us with a lot of questions. How about I pray that God would help us to see Jesus more clearly from this passage? That's what we want. And we might get into answering some of the questions as well. But join me and we'll pray. Father God, thank you so much that you're in control. Thank you that you are the God of the universe. Thank you that we get to come and hear from you and, and hear from your word. And we pray tonight that you might help us see Jesus more clearly. We pray that as we get into this Bit of the word which can be difficult and confusing to understand at first, that with the help of your spirit as we get into it, that you would help us to understand what you want to say to us through Revelation 19 and 20. Amen. Okay. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where you've gotten expectations wrong about someone or something? You know, like when you think someone's gonna act a certain way because of the way they dress or look, and then they just are completely different to how you first pictured them, or, or when you expect something to go better than it does, and it, or, or worse than it does, and it doesn't go that way. I, I, I feel like I would say I'm someone with optimistic uh, expectations, and my wife would say I'm someone with unrealistic expectations. I'm constantly kind of thinking things will go a little bit better than they actually do. So there's, there's some things where getting the expectations wrong is just not that big a deal. It can lead to some confusion. It can lead to, oh, I'm a bit late or whatever. But there are other times when it can actually lead to a confusion and uh, be a bit of a bigger deal. Or, like, for example, this is one that stands out to me. You know, like when a guy asks a girl out, but they do it in the kind of lame, like, hey, I'm going to see a game, and I've got some friends that are coming as well, and maybe would you want to come too? And it's just so unclear with expectations. Don't Guys, don't be like that. Be a bit more clear. Uh, there's some dating advice for you guys, uni church. Uh, it can lead to confusion if you don't get the expectations right in what you're communicating. And I think our world at the moment has confused expectations about Jesus. Many people think of Jesus as just a kind of a nice teacher, or the, the primary view that they have of Jesus is kind of baby Jesus in the manger at Christmas. Or you know, there's lots of different views that people have, but they perhaps have gotten the expectations about Jesus wrong. I think for most people in Auckland that don't know Jesus, they're not a Christian, I would say that kind of the default position is to think of Christianity or following Jesus as being a bit like a lifestyle option. You know, you might have your um, lifestyle option being going to the gym or might be being part of a particular footy club or a community group or something else like that. And, and I've got my lifestyle option, and, and someone else has their lifestyle option, and it's kind of an added extra to your life. Do you guys get that sense? Uh, when, I, when I tell people I'm a Christian, often the first thing they say is, you know, un- unless they're really critical, which actually is pretty rare, is something like, oh, that's cool for you. That's a nice thing for you. But there's, there's no sense of it being relevant to them at all. See, the expectations have meant that they're confused about the relevance of Jesus, But today's passage cuts right to the heart of who Jesus is. And we're going to see today that Jesus is relevant for every one of us because at one point, at the end of history, we're all going to meet him. There's no one that's not going to meet Jesus, and there's only two ways that you will meet Jesus. That's what we're going to see tonight. And and to, to think that Jesus is irrelevant means you can't think that unless you've completely misunderstood Christianity and misunderstood Jesus. This passage tonight, if you've been around church for a little bit, you'll be aware that this is a kind of passage that people like to talk about what it means. It's kind of one of the disputed passages in the Bible, chapter 20, uh, talking about the millennium. Now, if you're new to Christianity and, that, and th- that doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry, when we get there, you can kind of just tune out a little bit, because uh, I don't want to make that the focus of this sermon. What we're going to do is, chapter 20, the millennium, it just speaks about this thousand years where Jesus reigns and Jesus binds Satan and reigns with the saints. And people have different ideas about when that means. I'm going to take what's called an amillennial position through this passage. Now, again, if that doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry. Uh, You can kind of um, let that wash over you a little bit if you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity. But I'm going to take that position from this passage but I'm not going to focus too much on all the different ways you could read this. So here's what we're going to do. Tonight, I want us to focus primarily on Jesus and see what this passage says about him and make that the, the core of what we see. Now, next week, we're going to come back and have another bite of the cherry at Revelation 20. We're going to look at the different ways that people read it, why it matters, what's at stake, why we think it's helpful, that it matters what, how you read it. You know, we don't think it doesn't matter. We do think it matters, and it matters for your Christianity. But whichever way you land, the guts, the core of this passage, and the what it says about Jesus is the same. And so that's my goal tonight, that I would help us see Jesus more clearly. We're going to have question time tonight, but some of the questions, my answer might be come back next week. Um, so just prepare yourself for that. I might have a good answer. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how we go. So the details matter. Next week, we're going to focus on the millennium a bit more. Tonight, I want to show us Jesus. So I think Jesus is relevant for us today because you can't avoid the pictures you see in this passage. The first one we see, point one, is that Jesus is the divine warrior. He's the divine warrior. If you've been following along with this over the last few weeks, we've seen these cycles of the end of the world, of moving towards uh, what God's doing in the world towards the end of the world. And we saw last week in chapter 17 to 19 that the evil kind of rebellion, humanity against God, personified in the character of Babylon, the the city against God, um, falls, is defeated, and is judged. And it's this kind of picture of this world that wants nothing to do with Jesus and the evil that encompasses all of that being wrapped up and put away with. Now this week we pick up uh, the same kind of events from a different angle. Remember, Revelation often is like it's like uh, when you have a footy game and you see different angles of a try. It's kind of sh- to check the grounding, and you see you know an angle from the sideline, and then a top down angle, and then a zoom in angle. Revelation's doing that from different angles to show us different spiritual realities. So this week let's have a look at Jesus the Warrior. Pick it up with me in chapter nineteen. Verse 11, Verse eleven. we see all these, all these truths about Jesus. He's a figure of great power, and he rules with justice. He makes war with justice. And verse 12, we see he's got many crowns. See, throughout the book of Revelation, the claim to wear crowns is a claim to royalty. It's a claim to be in control, to have the power, and, and Satan claims to have the crowns in Revelation. But what do we see here? Jesus has many crowns, not just one crown. I don't know where he's wearing all his crowns, but he's got many of them. In verse 13, we see he's got a name that no one knows, but then we're told his name. It's the word of God. Verse 14, he rides at the head of a vast army, and verse 15, does battle with a sharp sword of his mouth. He rules with an iron rod. And tramples the winepress of the fierce anger of God's wrath. That might just be the most terrifying sentence in the whole Bible. This picture of this warrior. His name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now it doesn't say it explicitly, but who is this writer? It's Jesus, isn't it? It's Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus in all his glory and power when he will return at the end of the world to bring all things into right judgment under his rule. See, lots of the descriptions of Jesus here are from the start of Revelation chapter 1. Go back and check that out and see how similar the picture of Jesus at the start is with this picture of the writer. But I want to show us two that you might have missed on first reading. The first is that Jesus is the word of God. See, have a look at how John... The author of Revelation starts his biography of Jesus' life. The same guy wrote both books. Here's how he starts his biography. John 1 verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, John describes this writer, Jesus, as the Word. See, what does he mean by that, that he's the Word of God? See, John is identifying Jesus as God, but he's saying even more than that. He's saying that Jesus is the self-revelation of God. See, I can tell some things about someone just by looking at them. I can look at Andrew and say, gee, he's not going to do well in the sun for a few hours. You know? <laughs> I, I, I can look at someone and kind of guess some things about them, but if I want to really know someone, what do I need? I need them to tell me about themselves. You want to know someone's hopes, their fears, their dreams, their values, who they are at their core? They need to tell you. See, that's what John's saying Jesus is. You want to know the character of God? You want to know what he's on about in the world? Look at Jesus, the Word of God, God revealing himself to us. See, Jesus is the Word of God who John says comes and lives among us, lives and dies so that we can know God's heart for us, so that we can know God's plan for us, what he values, what he cares about, his character. John says it's in Jesus that we find that truth. See, that's the first one, the Word of God. And the second one that's worth highlighting here, if you haven't picked up on it, is the reference to Psalm 2. Now, we've looked at this passage before in the book of Revelation, but it's actually really important, this psalm, and so I want to speak about it again if you haven't remembered that. See, Psalm 2 speaks about the nations, all the kings of the earth, and they rage against God, they hate God, and they plot and they plan about how they're going to rebel against God and overthrow His rule. And the Lord sits on His throne, and He laughs at them. He laughs. He he laughs at their um, attempt to overthrow Him and their rebellion against Him. And He says, "I have chosen My King, My Son, who will rule. And it won't be any of you kings." And He picks it up. Pick it up with me in Psalm two, verses seven. He says, "This, you are My Son." Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them like an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. See, that's what verse 15 is talking about, it, isn't it? This rider is one who rules with an iron rod or an iron scepter. The kings of the earth, the nations come against Jesus and what happens? They shatter like pottery. He rules over them. They have no, they're no match to him. See, we get this vision in the first bit of Revelation 19 of Jesus as the divine warrior that's spoken about all the way back thousands of years ago in Psalm 2. And what it's doing for us is it's showing us that Jesus is God's king, that the nations don't stand a chance against him, that he's the one who at the end of the age will be in control of all things. He will win the victory. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation 19, isn't it? So you look at the, the passage, verses 17 to 21. It's kind of, it's a bit of a gruesome picture. As, as Kara is reading it, did you get the sense of like, oh, it's like this call to the birds to come and feast on all the different fleshes of the kings and the rulers. And he uses the language of the beast and the false prophet. Remember back to uh, Revelation 13, the beast and the second beast, or called the false prophet here, are uh, uh, human authority and power against God. And false religions or false ideologies against God. And he says that those things, those kings, those rulers, those powers are nothing compared to God. See, Andrew talked about having a big battle scene. But this is perhaps the most anticlimactic battle you've ever heard. There is no battle. What does it say? It just lists them all ready to be eaten by the birds. And then verse 20, the beast was taken prisoner. And along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with the signs. And they're thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. If you're expecting Lord of the Rings defending Gondor against the Orcish horde, it's it's not here. This isn't that kind of a battle. What do you get? An anticlimactic, and they were taken prisoner. This would not make a good Hollywood movie. No, what is it doing for us? It's showing us the power and the majesty and the victory of God's king. It's showing us that nothing can stand against this king. The nations are no match to the divine warrior, Jesus. They're just a fly that he can swat away in a moment. They're gone. And it's this reality that ought to shape how we see Jesus. See, I think this passage We get a second look at it later on in chapter 20. And a third look at the judgment again at the end of chapter 20. That's a little bit confusing. We're going to come back next week, remember. But have a look with me at chapter 20, 7 to 10. See, See how similar the language is here? There's a huge army gathered against God's people. It's Gog and Magog. That's, you don't have to worry too much about them. We might cover them next week. That's a, a prophecy from Ezekiel 38 and 39. But look how similar the language is. It's this huge army that gather led by Satan. And, and all of a sudden, what do we see? Defeat. This time, it actually tells us how the defeat happens. It's fire rains down from heaven and, and destroys them. But the end result is the same. Total defeat and they're thrown into the lake of fire. In the first battle, I think the emphasis is on the beasts and the the human authorities and kings and rulers because it's quoting them back from Psalm 2. The second battle, who do we see who's totally defeated? It's Satan, isn't it? The power of evil has no match against God. It's this this re-looking at the same battle from a different perspective. See, if you understand this passage clearly you'll see that Jesus can't just be a lifestyle option. He's not an optional extra. It's not like you can sign on to have a bit of Jesus in your life, like you can be in a footy club or a community group or a hobby group at uni here. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who is God's king whom no enemy will stand against. Do you see what this passage is claiming about Jesus? Jesus. It totally does away with the. Oh, he's just a little baby in the manger, sweet and innocent, just full of love, and and, and, you know, how could he be anything else? No, what we see here is Jesus with all his power. When Jesus walked on earth, he was just a. He looked like just a man, but every now and then you get a glimpse that you'd get a glimpse of who he really was. He'd, do, he'd heal someone or he'd say a word and the wind and the waves would be under his command. But here at the end of Revelation 19, we get the full look at Jesus, the divine warrior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lots of different religions have religious teachers, the Buddha, Muhammad. Lots of different religions try to do different things. They give you a a wise path for living. They try to help you live a better life. They try to make your life better. But the claim of Christianity is far different to any other religion. It's not interested in making your life better. The claim of Christianity is interested in introducing you to Jesus, that you might see him clearly for who he is, the King of Kings, And it's a claim that Jesus lived and died. He backed it up by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, like no one has done before. It's a claim that each of us in this room, if our trust is in Jesus, has as the center of our faith that we hold to the truth that Jesus died and rose again and is ruling and reigning victorious in heaven and we're waiting for him to come back. Are you persuaded by that truth? Have you ever looked into the evidence for that truth? If you're new to the claims of Christianity, can I encourage you, that is well worth your time to do it. If you look into it and you find out that it's useless and there's no evidence there, well, come and tell us, because that's the center of the Christian faith. All of us, our faith is useless if Jesus didn't die and rise again. I wonder, though, if you've been a Christian for a while like me, if this picture which seems so vivid here fades a little bit on Monday morning. Does it tend to fade into the background of your life amidst the busyness and the chaos of getting to work, getting to uni, doing all the things that you've got to do, the assignments that are on your mind, exams coming up? See, we need clarity to keep this vision central, to remind us of who Jesus is, of his power, that he's the King of Kings. See, being a Christian isn't about having my life all together. It's not about living my best life now or even just knowing everything that the Bible teaches, knowing facts. It's a truth that we believe about the person of Jesus, that he really is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in him is our only hope. He's God's divine warrior, the chosen king who will defeat all things at the end of history. But Jesus' victory isn't just a victory at the end of history. What we see in this passage is, it's a victory that's already happened that we're experiencing now. See, come to chapter 20 with me. Now, you might have a different way of reading this. That's okay. We can be friends still. I think whichever way you read this, the um, central point about Jesus is still true. But look what chapter 20 says. It says that John sees an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain. And, and, and this angel, he seizes the dragon, who we find out is Satan, and he binds him for a thousand years. And he throws him into the abyss and seals him. Why? What's the purpose? So that he might no longer deceive the nations. And after that, he's released for a short time. And so Satan is taken and bound and held captive and, to, and so that he can't deceive the nations. Now, some people tend to read this and just go, well, chapter 19 has happened, and now I'm going to read chapter 20, and so that must be happening after Jesus has come down and the final battle's already happened, and then we get this period of a 1,000 years. Um, that's how some people read this. If that's you, I've I got some sympathies for you. I think that's a, a valid way of reading this passage, but I don't know that it's the best way. I don't know that it's the best way. I, I think that this passage is designed to show us more accurately a truth about Jesus' ruling now. So we're going to come back to, again, again, come back to this next week, but let me give you a few quick reasons why. Firstly, Revelation is symbolic, and it's cyclical. So we, we've seen, haven't we, if you've been with us through this series, that we get these pictures of um the time we live in now, moving towards the final judgment. And then it wraps back around and we get the time we're living in now and then the final judgment. Time we're living in now, final judgment. And I think the first bit, chapter 19, sits at the end alongside the fall of Babylon. It's the final judgment. But then chapter 20 wraps back around again to give us one last look at the time we're living in now. That's, that's how I think the best way to read it is. And it doesn't make sense to me to read it chronologically. If Jesus has come in chapter 19 and it's the end of the world and he's wiped out all the nations and he's ruled with justice, well, who's Satan deceiving? There's no one left. God, you know, if God's people are with God already and the nations are wiped out, who's, who's left there to be deceived? It just doesn't seem to me to read chronologically. I think... The other thing is the symbolic nature of Revelation. Remember, the, the numbers in Revelation are not really designed to be read literally. A thousand years, I think, is symbolic of a really long time. right? That's what, I think that's what a thousand years means. I don't think it's a literal thousand-year period. I could be wrong, but there you go. There's my view. Because the numbers in Revelation are very rarely used literally. Think about all the, the different numbers that we've heard. The, the, the seven for perfection, the, the ten for kind of rule, the three for trinity, the um, three and a half is half of seven, symbolic of not yet there. If this is all washing over you, don't worry. This is, We'll come back again next week. But I think this passage is not speaking about an event that happens at the end of the world after Jesus returns. I think one clue that we get is the phrase that Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations. See, what does that mean? Does it mean that he doesn't deceive at all? Because we've seen through Revelation, haven't we, that Satan is still at work in our world. He's still at work trying to pull people away from God, trying to pull them away from having their trust and faith in the one true king. Now, I I don't think that's what this means. I don't think it's no deception at all. I think what this means is that Satan is powerless to stop the gospel going out. His deception has no power anymore because the gospel is going forth. So how I would read it would be something like, uh, this is a vivid image, a picture of the reality that Jesus at the cross has won a victory against Satan and now Satan is powerless. He, he holds no power against Jesus, the divine warrior, because of the cross. That's the next subpoint. In your See, I want to I give you a few verses that kind of back this up, because I think this way of reading it is the most helpful way of reading what the millennium is in line with the rest of Scripture. So come back with me to Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> it's going to come up on the screen. What we see here, this is the great moment in Revelation where the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, was thrown to the earth. And his angels with him. In verse ten, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, "The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have now come, because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been thrown down." Just Do see the similarities there. Satan, the deceiver, has been thrown down. He's no longer able to accuse because of God's victory won by the authority of His Christ. See, when did that happen? It happened at the cross. That's the great vision that Revelation is centered on. Remember Revelation 4 and 5? It's the Lamb who was slain to purchase for himself a peoples from every nation, tribe and tongue. And his praise is he goes to the throne room after the victory has been won. See, another passage that backs this up is Mark 3. Jesus, in the context here in Mark 3, he's been uh, doing lots of miracles. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. And the Pharisees, they don't even say it. They just think to themselves, oh, I wonder if Jesus is doing that with the power of Satan. And Jesus can kind of, he, he, he can read their minds. Imagine being in a room with Jesus, right? Like, you'd be so careful what you were thinking. And, and Jesus replies to them. He says, would Satan fight against himself? No, no, no. Here's what he says. Mark chapter 3, verse 27 No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. See what Jesus is saying with his life and death and resurrection, he has bound the strong man, Satan. And he's plundering from Satan those who were under Satan's control. Satan is now powerless to stop Jesus. See, Satan's like a mafia boss. But he's a mafia boss in prison. He's in prison for life and he's powerless to get out, but he can still make the odd phone call. He's got some connections on the outside, he's still got influence in the world, but he is powerless to stop the spread of the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus says at the end of his biography of his life recorded for us in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, it's going to come up on the screen. Jesus said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you see there? Who's got the authority? It's not Satan anymore, it's Jesus. He's wanted at the cross. Who's, who, and, and what's going to happen? The disciples are going to go forth and, and make disciples of all the nations. The nations are no longer deceived by Satan because of Jesus' victory at the cross. See, Christianity has spread across the globe, spread across the globe since that moment. At the, at currently, the best estimates are there's about 2.3 billion Christians in the world, that it's about a quarter of the people that live in our world today. And there's no geographical center. It's this group of people that are gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation, and Satan is powerless to stop them. See, this, this morning at North, we witnessed a few of our friends from Unichurch get baptized. Weenie, Dilshan, uh, Jasper, if you know Jasper from Unicon, friends of ours put their trust in Jesus this year or recently in the last little few years, and they got baptized, and it was... Jesus plundering from Satan. Some, these guys were won from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Satan was powerless to stop it. And we were there this morning cheering them on, what Jesus has done in their life. It was awesome. See, Satan's just a dog on a leash. He's scary. He's trying to do the worst that he can in the world. But he's limited. He's powerless ultimately to stop the spread of the gospel. And I think this ought make us optimistic as Christians. It ought fill us with hope. What are you like in your head? What's the self-talk like for you when you go to have a, a conversation with someone that you care about who doesn't yet know Jesus? Are you dreading it? I think passages like this show us that we ought not dread it. They remind us that Satan has been defeated, he's been bound at the cross, and we can have hope and optimism that the gospel will go out, that more and more people will find the life-giving news of Jesus and put their trust in him. It's a great passage that fills us with optimism. See, as we do it, though, we do it knowing that Jesus is the warrior, but knowing that we actually still fall short. We still don't live the, the way that God would have us live, and that although the ultimate victory has been won at the cross and it's coming in the future, that we still fail at times. And so we need more than a picture of Jesus as warrior. We need the second picture. We need Jesus as savior. That's the second point in your outlines. See, this passage shows us that Jesus isn't just the warrior. He's also the savior. This one's going to be a lot quicker. Don't worry. And what we see in verses 4 to 6 is this reality that the saints come and come to life and reign with Jesus. Now, I've already outlined that I think this thousand-year period is the moment between Jesus' death and resurrection and his coming return at the end of the world. And so it makes us ask the question, what is the thousand years where the saints reign? What is, what is it, Revelation verse 20, verse 6, to be blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. I think this passage that shows us Jesus as Savior is speaking about the spiritual reality of the the resurrection that happens when we put our trust in Jesus and find new life in him. See, Ephesians 4 is a good place. Ephesians, sorry, Ephesians 2 verse 4 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. See, that's what this first resurrection is speaking about, the reality that if your trust is in Jesus, that you've been made alive with Christ, that you are saved by grace. And so if that's you, then what's the reality well, you don't have to be afraid of the second death. The second death, which we see later on in 20, verse 15, is, is hell. The final judgment that awaits those who are in rebellion against God. See, the one who trusts in Jesus has no need to fear death. No need to fear what lives on the other side. They live with the security and hope that no one else can even dream of doesn't matter what happens in your life and how it ends, you know for certain that you're going to be with God forever if your trust is in Jesus. It means that death has no power over you if you trust Jesus, if you take up his offer of being a savior. It means that you don't have to fear. Remember the YOLO um, phrase that everyone used to say? It's not true for Christians. Uh, So many people around us What drives them is experiences, trying to get the most out of life, you know, suck the marrow out of the bones. It's this, they're driven to go, that drives them to go on holidays and what career they take and the things that they do is all about making the most of this life because it's all I have. I've got this one short life and then it's over. But for Christians, we don't have to live that way. We can live with the security of knowing that I've got eternity with God in the new creation to experience all the joy and blessing of life with Him. I don't have to go and see the Northern Lights and do my trip to Europe and whatever other things that you might want to see as the kind of pinnacle of experience in this world. I don't, I don't need to see it all and do it all now because I know that I'm going to be with God forever. It's a security that we desperately need and one that we need to remind ourselves of in the ups and downs of life. That because Jesus is the Savior, because of the new life that we have with him, that we can be secure. We don't have to be anxious. Our Christianity is not dependent on how we're feeling on any given day, but on Jesus and the the salvation that only he offers. It's a security, though, that we need especially at the end. See, come to chapter 20 to the end with me, verse 11. We see a great white throne with with one seated on it, God. This is the same throne room, I think, that's referred to in Revelation 4 and 5. And earth and heaven have fled. and, And in verse 12, we see the dead and the great and the small. It's kind of everyone standing before the throne. And the books are opened. And the books are opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by what was written in the books. See, the books are opened and the dead are judged according to what is written in them. Um, what, what's the reality here is that Jesus isn't playing anymore. That actually each of us are going to be held accountable for the things that we've done in our life. And at the end of all of history, all of it's going to be recorded. See, see the, the idea here is imagine, imagine if you had a GoPro on your head and it was kind of with the headband, and it recorded every single thing that you did in your life. But even more than that, imagine that it was actually um, a new technology, and they can actually record your thoughts, uh, your desires, all the things that are going on inside your head as well, and it records it all and captures every thought and writes it down in one of these books. Now, who would want their friends to see that? Who would want their family to see that? I definitely wouldn't. I can't think of the... um, unimaginable amount of things that I would be so ashamed of that I wouldn't want anyone else to know or see. All the times when I've been selfish, when I've lied, when I've put others down behind their back, when I've um, failed to treat God the way I ought to have treated him. That's the one book. And the reality of this passage is that at the end of the world, God's going to open the book which records everything of your life and he's going to find you wanting. He's going to find you not living up to his perfect standard. He's the perfect, holy, sinless God, and evil cannot be in his presence for eternity. And so he's going to find you wanting, and you're going to be thrown into the lake of fire, along with all the kings that rebelled against Jesus, all the the human powers, along with Satan. And it's this eternal um, awfulness without God. That's the reality of this passage. It's sobering for us. But the one hope that we get, do you see it there? It's all about whether your name's in the book of life. Do you see in verse 15, it's those whose names are not found in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. And so the alternate is that if your name's in the book of life, you're saved. You're safe with Jesus. Now, what is this, to have your name in the book of life? It's the core truth of the Christian message that you are trusting Jesus for your salvation. That the Jesus who died and lived a, who lived and, and lived a perfect sinless life and died for us, that, that he gives us his reward that he deserves for living sinlessly. And he, he takes on himself the punishment that we deserve, death. And, and, and there's this great transfer, and it's a relying not on your own works, but trusting in Jesus and taking up his offer as your savior. So if your name's in the book of life, you are safe and secure with God for eternity. You've got all the joy and blessing of being with him, which we're going to look at in the coming, the last bit of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. It's, it's all about whether your name's in the book, whether you're trusting in Jesus. It's about receiving the reward that he deserves and not the punishment that we deserve. We're we're, we're covered, we're washed clean, we're forgiven because of Jesus. See, this is the key, understanding this truth is the key to your Christian life. If you get this and live in it and and focus on it and remind yourself of it when you doubt that it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Jesus. It's not about the works that you do. It's about the works of Jesus that he's done, that he died for you on the cross. It, this passage is an invitation to hop off the kind of the hamster wheel of trying to do it all on your own accord, your own works, trying to be good enough constantly. And it's an invitation to hop off and rest in the hammock of the love of Jesus. You know that moment when you kind of ease back into a hammock? Have you got any hammock lovers in the house? And you ease back and there's a moment we are like, well, is it going to hold my weight? And then you go, oh, it is. And I'm, and I'm resting in the comfort and the security and the joy of the love of Jesus. My name written in the book of life, secure with him for eternity. See, that's what's on offer for us today. Jesus' righteousness and our names in the book of life for eternity. If we will take up his offer and put our trust in him. If we will, as Jesus puts it, if we will repent of our sin and believe that he really did die for us. That's the two pictures that we've gotten in this part of Revelation. We've seen Jesus as the divine warrior and Jesus as the savior. And friends, at the end of history, at the end of the world, when everything wraps up and comes to a conclusion, you will meet Jesus. You will meet him as sure as anything. That is the foundational truth of the Christian faith. And the question that we're left with tonight is, which Jesus are you going to meet? Are you going to meet him as the judge and the warrior, the one who rules all things and holds all people who have rebelled against him to account for eternity? Or are you going to ease into the hammock of life and security with the God who made you and loves you and wants you to come back to him? That's on offer for us tonight. And and my prayer is, as we kind of soak in this passage and we've seen Jesus more clearly, that Jesus would dominate our thoughts. My prayer is that you might leave here tonight and think of Jesus. You might fall asleep tonight and think of Jesus. And and my prayer is for those of us who trust him, that we might think of the security and the comfort that we have in him. And for those who don't yet know Jesus or trust him as their Lord, I I want to leave you with that question. What are you going to do with this tonight? You've seen a picture of Jesus. What are you going to do with it? Do something with it. Check him out. Check out the evidence for who he is. And let's pray that this reality of these two images that we've seen of Jesus tonight would be the thing that we live for. How about we pray? Father God, we've seen tonight some sobering truths. We've seen the reality that Jesus is the ruling and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. That at the end of history, when the world wraps up, that there will be no one left in rebellion to him that he is ruling over all things. But we've seen in the midst of that judgment that there is a sweet offer for us. It's salvation, it's life, it's eternity with the God who made us, not held accountable and dealt with with the sins that we've done, but instead we we get Jesus' perfect life. We're so thankful for the security and the hope that comes from knowing Jesus. Thank you that we've had the chance to see him more clearly tonight. We pray that this reality of heaven and hell, of of meeting Jesus as judge and warrior or as saviour, would uh, be something that we consider and that we uh, give us clear priorities this week and for the rest of our lives based on those truths. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.